Welcome to Zero Five O. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. In this episode, I'm excited to meet the UK's biggest bicycle business. The Brompton bike was invented in 1975 and has since become as iconic as a red London bus. You see them everywhere, and no surprise, since a thousand of them are made each week at Brompton's West London factory. Brompton aren't just an iconic folding bike, they're also a key component of a city's sustainable transport system. And when coupled with trains and buses, vast distances can be travelled easily and with a very low carbon impact. And today, I'm delighted to welcome Louisa Holbrook to the show. She's Head of Sustainability at Brompton Bicycles, and her maxim, burn calories, not fossil fuels, is perfect for her line of work. Welcome to the show, Louisa. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on here. I'm really excited to hear what's going on at Brompton. Um, So my first question is, Brompton are an amazingly green company, and um, it's a delight to see so many spinning around the cities and making them more sustainable. Why does it need a head of sustainability? It's a great question. I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head there in fundamentally Brompton is a purpose-driven company. It was it was set up by our founder, Andrew Ritchie, who wanted to invent a solution that enabled him to get around the city, but also enabled that bike to be able to be tucked away, you know, when you were in the office or on, or on the, the bus, etc. So he saw a uh, a challenge that existed and, and he, he built something for it and from the very beginning his design ethos was very much based around making something last making something be repairable making something be durable make something be easy to dismantle um i think you know i always joke that if someone invented it today we'd probably put little references on it about it being a circular economy product or all this whereas it was just good old-fashioned you make something you make it well and you make it last so that's inherently always been Brompton and who Brompton still is today. But Brompton's grown massively as a company. It was a small company. It was a small SME and it is now a large entity. It's up to 800 employees. We make 100,000 bikes a year. We export 75% of them to the world. Like We are a big company. And as you grow up, you, you need to take responsibility of what that growth means. And as we have grown, so as our demand on our resources, so as our supply chain, so as our aspirations for the future. So it was the right time, I think, uh, for Brompton to just to take a moment to look at, well, do we actually really understand the impacts of a company? Not just because we make a good product, but as a company, what are our impacts and what are we going to do about them? So that's where my role came from. That's brilliant. And I stand corrected because I thought you made uh, just over 50,000 bikes a year. So it's actually 2,000 bikes. My introduction was wrong, which is uh, quite, quite... You're not far out, though, because we've literally made that growth within the last 18 months. It's been absolutely crazy. So, um, yeah, we're already bursting at the seams here at this factory. Which is amazing. Um, and we'll come on to the future later. So from a sustainability perspective, what are the key goals and the sort of the, the key areas to work on at Brompton uh, for your for your area? What's the, what's the top three areas of activity? I mean, I don't think it's going to surprise anyone. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we are a manufacturer. We make a product. We are also a retailer and we have e-com presence and, and we have retail presence. But ultimately, 
over 80% of our impacts, that's across our own operations, scope one and two, but also our wider supply chain, scope three, over 80% of that derives from our supply chain. And, you know, that's ultimately all the decisions we make. We decide what we're going to make, what we're going to make it out of and who we're going to buy it from and how we're going to get it to us. But that's where the majority sits. So not surprisingly, there's, there's a huge focus on what do we do about those impacts? At the moment, we're looking at that through a carbon lens. So we're setting our science-based targets. Uh, we're getting those roadmaps in place. We're looking at what net zero looks like and is it even achievable? Everyone loves to say it, but I think we're being really honest and transparent around, is that even something we can get to? What does that look like? Um, so that's some really great conversations going on. We've done life cycle assessments on our products that look beyond carbon. So we've looked at our land use, our water, you know, our effects on biodiversity. And in the future, that's definitely where we want to take those next steps. Beyond carbon, a big thing for us is our ethical trade, our human rights. Again, we have a supply chain. We want to make sure that's definitely something we're looking at. And then culturally as well, we're doing a lot of work internally on empowering individuals to understand what does sustainability actually mean to me, to my job, to my role, to the decisions I make in the company? And, and what can they do um, to move the agenda forward? Because I think sustainability, we have an internal comms campaign we're just about to kick off, uh, the title of which is sustainability is not a department. And the concept being it's, it's everyone's role. It's culturally who we are. And, you know, it's up to everyone to take that forward. So that's something we're really kind of looking at uh, for the next year as well. And we're recording this um, the day after World Environment Day and the, the motto or the hashtag was only one Earth, which was the motto of the original Earth Day, which I now can't remember when it was, 1972, 1974, something like that, a long time ago. And even in a super green business like um, Brompton, do you think on that culture and that sort of communication, do you think we still have a long way to go with people actually realising that you know, there is only one earth and we've only got one shot at this. So I've just jumped straight into culture away from. Uh... <laughs> no, I love it. And and if I'm honest, I suppose I have to be the critical voice in the company. That's what I'm here for. That's that's what I've been employed to do. And I'm actually the person that says, well, we're not this huge green company. That green companies, sustainable companies don't exist. There are companies who are further on a journey and have a greater awareness of their impacts and what they're doing about it. But nobody is there. Nobody has made it. And that's definitely a message that we we try and get across. And I think, for example, I'll go back to our life cycle assessment. We did a life cycle assessment of our main bike, our sea line, and that really broke down where all those impacts come from. When we went around the business and communicated that afterwards, it was like light bulb moments. People were just like, I've never thought of that. I never realized that really asking questions into, okay, well, what's driving that? You know, what does that mean? And humanizing impact and, and creating people to uh, enabling people to visualize impact and where it's happening and where it's happening in the world and how their decisions creating it. That's where you start seeing changes and, and cultural changes. And that is happening. But Am I going to sit here and say absolutely everyone in Brompton is completely aware of their impacts and what they're doing? No, and that's the journey and that's the excitement that we're on. Yeah, and it's and it's so good to be on that on that journey. But I think also context is really important. And um, as you said, it's going to be no surprise to anybody your impact is from manufacturing things because it's not going to exist in the first place. And a bike has a embedded carbon and there's a carbon impact from making the bike. But have you done any benchmarking between? other forms of personal urban mobility or personal mobility I, i'm not sure like you know if you compared a 
uh, electric scooter to a electric moped or a petrol moped versus a an electric bike or a bicycle or a bicycle perhaps that's made in uh, the east is there any context around that or are you sort of broadly about the same internally we've definitely done some benchmarking it's always hard to compare yourselves life cycle assessments are done in there isn't a standard methodology so you have to be so careful on comparisons we have done that internally and that's helped a lot of those conversations I'm very reluctant to rest on our laurels as a company and use that to be our excuse to say well actually we're better than a bike made in the east or we're better than a scooter or whatever the results of, of that analysis may be I'm really reluctant to share that information in a way that makes people just go well that's all okay um I think again I have to be the the, the, the critical voice internally and say well that's all well and good but that's not good enough this is still our impact and this is how our impact's going to grow in the future so we have to do better than that so we have done that and you know I'm proud to say that we are a bike that's built well um, we, we use good materials we build to last there's a lot of great things about us but there's definitely more we can do as well which is the journey we're on it has to be said, I had my Brompton for eight years before I had to take it to a bike shop. So if, if you if you're ever in the business of selling spare parts, I don't think you're going to do very well. <laughs> no, and and it's we also spend a lot of money on warehouse space where we keep parts for bikes who are much much older than that, fifteen twenty years, and and we still keep parts for them, um, just in case that one customer gives us a call and asks for that brake cable or whatever it may be. So yeah, there's some areas of our business that are sustainable, but probably not commercially viable in that respect. But it's true to who we are. No, absolutely. You're you're sort of, um, I mean, relatively uh, new recruit into, I think you've been there for sort of 18 months, two years into Brompton, but you're already talking um, on, uh, on your, in, in sort of things you're talking about at Brompton is that about not having a job. And you say, ultimately, I always say that my job is not to have a job and it shouldn't exist at all in the future. Sort of an interesting perspective is uh, to sort of try and do yourself out of a job. Is it, it, could you explain that a bit more? Uh, well, apart from early retirement is obviously what I'm trying <laughs> to achieve here. It's something I really strongly believe in and very passionate about. I've spent my whole career, you know, 12 plus years now working in corporate responsibility teams. Um, so departments who are set up to support the business on their ambitions um, for environmental and social unphilanthropic improvements. And that's brilliant. And I do, I do think there is an absolutely a place for those teams. And they are the internal experts. They are referred to being the internal critics. They are the people who will guide the business on where they need to go. But ultimately, being a sustainable or responsible business, it's, it's not a side project and it's not a department's job and it's not a nice to have. It has to be fundamental to our business models. So um, I report direct to CEO at Brompton and I work very closely with the um, the chiefs and the directors. And actually what I'm finding is not just setting a sustainability strategy, but actually infiltrating and influencing core business decisions and core business strategies is how you grow a responsible and sustainable business. And that's the shift we have to make. It might require internal expertise like myself to be there in the the beginning to get the data and get everyone moving but actually my job is about empowering all those leaders in the business to be able to take this on so that yeah ultimately I should be able to step out and Brompton shouldn't need a head of sustainability because it is integrated and core and part of leadership's agendas to take this forward so I think 
realistically, if we're looking at the urgency of how things need to be done, we, we've just got to take that step forward and it, it just can't be a side project anymore. It just has to be how we do business. And do you think that, I mean, that is very interesting and I could see how you'd then, um, unfortunately, I think if your work is done at Brompton, there'll be plenty of other work for you after the after Brompton. So I think early retirement might be some way off. But do you feel that in the last few years in particular that the sustainability challenge corporately, this isn't in Brompton, but when you look across across corporate Britain or global corporations, do you think the sustainability challenge is getting harder because we seem to have this, while we've got this tidal wave of action and things are actually starting to happen, we've also got this uh, quite sinister undercurrent of greenwashing going on as well. And do you think therefore there's actually more for the sustainability profession to do now that we seem to have more willingness to face up to the environmental crisis or do you think it's actually just a sideshow that gets more publicity than it actually actually needs it's a hard one to answer I agree with you that greenwashing these days I think takes a different it looks different than it did years ago green greenwashing years ago was maybe a statement that wasn't completely true but actually greenwashing today is is, is so much bigger and, and so much deeper than that you know, you really have to truly understand if, if that's what a company is is truly doing or truly believing or not, or what percentage of their business is actually delivering on that is, is the big key one at the moment. I think there is less places to hide these days for sustainability. It very much is a show us what you're doing versus a are you doing anything. There is more pressure on companies. There is more legislation coming that is forcing people to do things. So movement is happening. It's like I say, I've been in the space for 12 years. It's a completely com- different conversation I have now to what I had in the beginning. Is it fast enough? No, definitely not. Is there a huge amount of people wanting to create that change? Yes. I think the sustainability space, professional sustainability space is so interesting at the moment. You've got people like myself who've come at it from an environmental background you've got people who've transferred from other jobs it's just growing hugely and so many people are passionate about it and so many employees are asking more of their their companies to see it there is a movement happening I don't think we're there yet I do think there's a lot of greenwashing still going on I actually think there's a lot of greenwashing that's going on without people realizing they're greenwashing and again I think this just comes down to understanding knowledge building transparency You've still got teams who are trying to find the good angle that's going to be a marketing angle, whereas actually just telling the truth and, and moving the conversation forward is, is so much more powerful and they're not quite getting that bit yet. But I'm really excited by the space, the business space at the moment. I think there is huge movement. It's going in the right direction. Companies are getting more confident in their lobbying to governments. You're seeing a stronger presence of businesses at likes of COP. It is an exciting place to be. It just still needs that push forward and, and hence that's the job I do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's all, I mean, I'm slightly conflicted on greenwashing because in some ways, I think some of it, you're right, is just sort of not accidental, but sort of come from an area of limited knowledge. But also 12 years ago, people weren't really that interested. It was so much, so many more eyes on sustainability now from sustainability professionals, but also from CEOs from the entire sort of strata of management in businesses that actually we're calling it out a bit sooner, even though there's a lot more activity and a lot more money than a, by a factor of many thousands than there were 12 years ago. So I think it's um, 
as long as we're heading in the right direction, I think if people make some innocent mistakes, then that's probably okay. Yeah, I, I would really agree with that. I am very much a glass half full person and I sit in a lot of sustainability networks and, and forums. And actually, one of my biggest bugbears is when sustainability professionals call out other sustainability professionals on statements they've made. Either they believe it's not enough and they could be doing more. And I just, I completely agree with you. We all believe that more needs to be done. I do things at Brompton and I get things over the line. And I'm like, that's brilliant. I know in my heart of hearts, it's still not enough, but that's that's because I'm the person doing the job and I know what the next three steps are, not just the one we're working on. But that doesn't mean we don't celebrate those achievements because if we keep knocking brands down for trying to do stuff, then everyone's actually going to go the other way. I heard the expression green blushing of where you're actually doing quite a bit, but you're not talking about it. And there could be various reasons behind that. And one of those reasons could be the fear of of, of this type of response. And and that's harmful in itself because then that's not sharing um, insight and, and, and creating, um, you know, engagement um, in that topic. So I, st- I still think it's a space that we we need to be careful how we react to things. And I'm definitely someone who would definitely applaud people for even taking a step forward. Even some of the worst companies in the world who, you know, I might have views on, if they even took one step forward, I'd be like, great, <laughs> let's let's keep going. <laughs> and I think that sort of hypersensitivity that environmentalists have around calling out everybody if they don't think it, believe it's 100% true is probably culturally born out of the fact that as a sector, we had to fight the climate deniers that were super well funded for 20 years. And every time anything was said, it had to be sort of triple fact checked and, you know, back to a version of the truth. But um, it's understandable, but it's definitely time, definitely time to move on, as you say. So going back to the folding bike, um, and, and forgive me, but we're going to have to move away from Brompton because there are others on the market. How do you see the folding bike? Obviously, Brompton is the best sitting in an urban transport system and do you think about that from a systems perspective because I know you've got some solutions that don't involve the ownership of a Brompton bike are you investing and doing a lot around the sustainability of cities or are you sort of very much focused on it's the personal ownership of a bike and do what do do with it what you may or do you see it as a much wider sort of sort of sustainable cities discourse yeah, we definitely keep one eye on the development around sustainable cities. Ultimately, our bike is part of an ecosystem. And actually, you know, we're big believers and, and some of the areas um, that we get involved in that more activism and lobbying side is around this more multimodal shift of transport. So, you know, bike is best. It's a great tagline, but it can also be a little bit dangerous. Bike is best when it's appropriate for a bike to be best. So, you know, there's a lot of journeys which are potentially too long or too dangerous to be taken by bike. So there it's conversations around, okay, well, what does that, can we not get the last mile by a more active mode of transport? You know, can we move people um, onto having varying types of things? That's where the Brompton bike or of a folding bike is beneficial because you can move those bikes around on those different multimodal options but you definitely need to be part of the ecosystem of, of active travel um, we don't just want to dominate it as in you you bike and then that's it that's not what our urban environments are set up for and that's not what 
socially we need um, as individuals within these urban environments. Um, so we're very much pro supporting a more multimodal shift and having more active travel options for all um, within cities. And I think a big area that we're looking at, especially through our bike hire business, is really challenging access to cycling as well. You know, the Brompton bike, it is it is a luxury item. It's an expen- expensive item. And actually, how do we get bikes into the hands of the people who really need it? We set up our Wheels for Hero uh, campaign off the back of COVID, which was around getting bikes into the hands of our frontline workers. And, you know, we've extended that work out um, beyond our NHS workers um, into the local communities. And we're also working on social memberships as well around enabling um, people to get access to bikes. Uh, We have a proven model that if you just give someone access to a bike for a period of, say, three months and they use it regularly, that's enough time for a behavioral shift to happen. So you can actually offer them options of potentially getting a bike via another method. Maybe that's a cycle to work scheme or a secondhand scheme or a charity, and they will continue to cycle. But you need that period of time to enable that behavior change to happen. So there's there's lots going on. The infrastructure still needs to be improved in cities for cycling. There's some cities doing better than others, but we're still not quite set up yet um, for enabling this more sustainable transport mode to, to exist alongside other modes. Can you tell us a little bit about the rental model for a Brompton? Because you don't actually need to own one. You don't know. And we're really, it's really exciting, actually, as a company to be exploring the product as a service um, kind of model. Uh, from a sustainability perspective, we obviously retain ownership of that uh, product. So we therefore will look after the maintenance of it. Um, we can extend its life. We also know uh, we can, if we can control it, we can recycle it at its end of life. Working with First Mile, we've established we can actually break down and recycle over 95% of our bike, which is amazing. So that's a really interesting model for us to explore and, and, and understand if there's appetite for that. So yeah, we have um, we have our bike hire, which enables you to have shorter access to bikes. Uh, you can just have it for an hour because you're going across the town. You can have it for longer. Um, interestingly, we found that people are actually having it for an average of three days. So people are actually taking them and using them for a longer period of time. We also now have a subscription model um, that we've been trialing uh, for the last year where people can have a Brompton on a subscription service, all of which have been really interesting. As I said, we export 75% of our bikes and we're actually finding there's areas, for example, in Europe, they are already a lot more familiar with rental models and therefore subscription has been very well received. I think in the UK, we we still live in a bit of an ownership society um, in, in everything, be it our housing, our products, everything. We're taking a bit of a longer shift to having a, a, a rental option, I, but I do believe it's happening. So I think this is a really interesting future for us. And it also enables us to play a, a stronger role in the circular economy as well. And do you, where's your biggest market outside the UK? Is it Germany? Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, the US is pretty good for us as well. And also Asia, we have a, a strong presence over there as well. I think the British brand travels really well and over there. It's, it has to be said, the th- since I've had a Brompton, the two things I've never had to buy, and they were quite often, they were quite regular purchases because they break, was a bike lock for obvious reasons, but also an umbrella because if it's raining, you just whiz into uh, 
the nearest tube station or get on a bus. So very good for the British weather. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> and um, this is a slightly left field question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The sort of mass city transport networks like TfL in London, but around the world have been affected massively with the sort of COVID downturn. Do you think the move um, for ground transit, like e-scooters and, and e-bikes and rental bikes and Bromptons, do you think it's moved enough? Do you think so many people have moved on to ground modes of transport that it's going to kill off some of these sort of much more traditional city mass transit so do you think they're going to be harder to fund as a result of getting more people onto onto bikes and scooters and walking I don't think so because I still think although there has been a huge increase in both people cycling but also definitely in in the other options be it scooters etc I don't think that's going to take away from the need of the existing transport systems I think you know, buses is a great example of that, you know, there's a lot of individuals who will always need and require buses and, and they should always be a service as are, you know, be it our tubes or our trains, um, etc. Going back to the multimodal, it's about understanding not how they all work as individuals, but how they all work as an ecosystem within a city and actually how the access points to all of those areas are fair, fairly distributed around as well. There's quite a lot of studies out there from various cities who overlay access to all these variety of transport modes and especially for example where we might talk about the designated areas for scooters or bikes and then, then you overlay the kind of income for people who live in those areas and there's already a stark kind of social economic you know disparity going on there. So I think you the future of our cities is they work as one and, and everything is connected and people can move around and, and change their options and it's accessible to all. So I don't think one's going to kill off another. You know, the scooter is now our competition. It never was before, but it's it's good competition. It's it's great if, you know, we've got a more, we've got a bigger customer base now that we want to get off a scooter and onto a bike. That's our own personal agenda, but I we don't have an issue with them being, you know, there let's get more people out you know in the fresh air let's let's get them into green areas let's move them around the city it, it's better for well-being and health um as well as from a sustainability perspective have you or brompton got a view of um the best and worst cities to cycle on cycle <laughs> around in the uk there must be some who are absolutely amazing they're probably very well publicized i haven't done my research I think I can only go from my own personal experience and I don't think I've probably been to enough. You know, there'll be probably people listening, shouting out their cities and, and how great they are. I'm currently doing a course in Cambridge, so I get to visit Cambridge once a month and the joy of getting off the train with my Brompton in Cambridge and cycling through with the mass of everybody else who's cycling. And it's not just students, it's families with their, their kids on cargo bikes. It's That's kind of a beautiful place to be and, and to cycle around and um, I must admit London, as much as London's still not entirely set up for it, there is a joy of cycling around London. I think since I've got my Brompton, I've learned so much more of the back streets and the green areas and stuff. So, yeah, I think London's also very well set up for it as well. I will just start to sort of talk about the future and sort of where, where you're going with Brompton and, and what's happening the electric Brompton, which is a, an electrically assisted version of the bike, is that something that's quite niche or is that going to be mass market? Is it growing very quickly? We're seeing a, a growing number of electric bikes around. How's that going? 
I mean, the electric bike market outside of Brompton, just the wider market is is huge. And, and the growth that's being projected for that market is is massive. So every bike brand out there is is investing heavily in the research and development and, and the supply chains that, that would support that going forward. I think it's really exciting because the assisting of the bike just really extends what the bike is capable of doing. Like I said, not everyone bike is best is not appropriate for everyone because some people don't want to cycle more than five to ten minutes because they don't want to arrive sweaty um, and and not ready for whatever they're attending the bike the e-bike really enables people to to use that transport so much you know people can travel longer people can travel further I really like the expression that it flattens cities so I was in Brussels the other week very hilly in Brussels and the e-bikes were just absolutely gliding round and and it completely flattens the city. So they become more accessible. We know that females, for example, are more attracted to them. Older generations are more attracted to them. So it opens up new markets as well. So for Brompton, it's it's going to be a big part of our future. We have to get ready now. We have to set up for it. And, and as it will be for other brands, we are, from a sustainability perspective, increasing our impact of an individual bike. We are taking on things like batteries and, and everything that's involved in that. So that's definitely areas where we have to make sure that, you know, we are understanding what that looks like and what the future of that looks like and what we can do to make sure we can deliver on a product which is going to help more people access active uh, mobility options, but but do it in a way that's still responsible as well. And presumably, I mean, not not just for Brompton, but for everybody, the supply chain is a bit of a headache um, from a sort of EV perspective, with some of the rare earths going in there, and the and the lithium and batteries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And is that something that's manageable, or is it a bit? Ooh, uh, we just have to sort of work through that for now until globally that sort of um, EV battery technology either moves on from. Um, some of the chemicals it uses or um, supply chains change? I think this is what's really exciting is I sit on an industry sustainability group that sits in Europe and then we also connect in with the um, American version as well. So I sit there with a lot of other companies across the bike industry, maybe they're other bike manufacturers or components or whatever it might be. And collectively, these are definitely the topics that we're addressing. Batteries is a key one at the moment. As individuals, we're Brompton would be too small to to kind of get involved in these conversations. But as an industry, we become more powerful and, and we can have those conversations. So we're having those conversations, be it um, back over in EU um, and, and beyond. So I think what's really interesting is it is on the priority list. If everyone knows we're going in this direction, everyone knows this is something we're going to have to find options for. And we're figuring out how we can do that and what other industries are doing and how we can work together with them to improve our options for the future on this. And on that uh, first mile of doing a lot of uh, work at the moment, we've got uh, five or six, I think, cargo bikes out doing deliveries and collections. We're actually collecting commercial waste on cargo bikes now, electrically assisted. Have Brompton got any sort of um, desires to look at that sort of cargo market, which again is part of the sustainable uh, city growing growing very quickly probably not folding but maybe and is that something that's on your radar that you can talk about or is it just not not in in sort of your world at the moment the answer I can give which no one ever likes is the uh, never say never conversation um, 
our design teams, there is all manner of areas which they are researching of what that future looks like. We we even have a team dedicated at looking at what future scenarios of cities look like and, and what the needs of those cities and individuals are and, and what the Brompton could look like um, to support that. We have made the same bike for, for many, many years now, but we also know that we have to remain relevant in the industry and we are going to have to look at these things. So I think the Brompton today and the Brompton in the future are going to be very different and we're excited to go on that journey and we'll stay true to who we are. But it'll be interesting what comes out of it. It could be things like cargo bikes. It might not. We might stay to what we do, but we've definitely got a, a wide horizon of, of what's coming. Very mysterious. So I'm moving on from <laughs> cargo bikes now. I want to look forward to the folding personal aeroplane um, <laughs> which will be coming soon and no doubt yeah I mean I think cargo is super interesting because we're sort of um, uh, so much of it is sort of the last mile and first mile of, of moving things around cities and it, they just work so well and Louisa before we run out of time I want to hear all about you as well this has been super interesting listening to uh, Brompton before we do that um, you've got massive news and very exciting news going down at in Kent, a new home for Brompton or a second home for Brompton. Not sure if it's a totally new home or whether it's a second home. What's going on in Kent and can you give us an update? Yeah, I mean, it's so exciting. I joined the company back in March 2020 and then unfortunately, obviously, we went straight into our kind of COVID lockdown. But in that summer when we were allowed back out, uh, Will, our CEO, invited me down to Kent and we stood in the middle of this floodplain and basically he told me this mad idea that he said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we built a factory here? Something he'd actually been planning for some time, but the first time I'd heard about it. And the vision um, that we that day went away with the architects and started building was just so exciting. It was like, how do we create a factory, a sustainable factory, a smart factory that can create these incredible products um, for the future that enables the community to be involved it's a a glass factory where people can come and look in and and see what we do uh, how it has education centers how we promote British engineering you know it really was this amazing dream and I'm, I'm proud to say that two years later we're going in for planning permission and we've maintained a lot of what was those real blue sky thinking moments of that day and you know we have this um amazing factory um, that is going to be built on a floodplain we're going to be rewilding over 60 acres that surround it it's going to be um, you can see out as much as you can see in it's it's going to be a place of not just engineering and manufacturing but also um, of, of education and, and growth and sustainability has absolutely been at the the heart of it you know how We've been on a learning journey. We've never built a factory before. I've never built a factory before. What does that even mean? What you know? What do, what does that look like? What can we do? What's possible? So it's it's super interesting to be going on that. I'm really exciting. Um, I think not just for Brompton, but I also think, you know, for the UK. This we are the UK's largest bike manufacturer. We needed to grow. We're bursting at the seams here. We're already out of space, and we needed a new home. And it could have been very easy for us to move things out of the UK. It would have been a lot cheaper for us to move things out of the UK. We could have done that, but we wanted to keep it here. I actually, without planning on this, I'm actually third generation bike manufacturer. My my grandfather spent his whole working life in Raleigh, um, as did my mum back up in Nottingham. And, you know, I've kind Brilliant. of somehow ended up in the space <laughs> myself without even realizing it. Meant and and there's, there's, there's something in keeping 
these industries, these skill sets that are alive. That's, that's, that's really interesting. And yeah, really glad to be part of that. And such great news is staying in the UK as well. And, and actually close to London as well, where it all started. So, um, you know, not, not, not a million miles away from the Brompton Oratory, which, which the bike gets its name from. So, Louisa, how on earth did you get into this and sustainability? I'm, I'm, I'll put it out there early. I'm pleased to see another fellow geographer uh, <laughs> on, on the podcast. But um, what's, your, what's your story and what was your journey to where we are today? Because listeners just love hearing about the sort of personal stories of uh, sustainability heroes like yourself. Oh, wow, hero. That's a, I don't think I've had that. So that's a big one. Um, I think probably similar to a lot of people, uh, you know, when I was young, I just loved being outdoors. Um, I, I spent, I'm from a family who, you know, we spent our whole holidays camping, caravanning, that type of thing. I was, uh, I didn't go to brownies. I wanted to go to Cubs because I wanted to be outside. I just always knew that I wanted a job which was in the environment and obviously went to university to do uh, my master's in geography. And at that point was very much going down the route of learning about climate change and then the effects it's having on the world. If I'm honest, I did not know that these jobs existed working on sustainability within the corporate environment. I basically fell into my first job with Virgin Atlantic. Um, I worked with them looking after sustainability there. And then I moved on to luxury fashion with Burberry. And I absolutely just fell in love with the opportunities that exist uh, for businesses to create positive change globally. And, you know, it's been my passion ever since and something I'm totally driven um, to do. How I came to Brompton is is quite an unusual story. I was looking for my next opportunity, my next challenge. And, um, you know, the glory of podcasts, I actually heard Will, my CEO, speaking on a podcast. Um, he was talking very openly about sustainability and how, again, as I said at the beginning, Brompton's purpose-driven, but do they truly know what their impacts are? Probably not. So I sent him a good old fashioned letter, wrote him a letter saying, I think what you need is a head of sustainability. And, you know, he gave me a call. I think his reference was, I've got a letter on my desk, you know, rather than an email, I need to call you to uh, to be able to remove that. And yeah, we, we chatted and uh, he was, you know, I think it was right place, right time. He absolutely was behind it. And, and here I am two years later. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the space of sustainability and sustainability within businesses is just growing massively. And I think I tell a lot of people that story because I think if you're in your own company, speak out about wanting to do more. If you want to move into this space, you know, go and learn about it. I think there's so many opportunities out there. And actually, a lot of the time, by the time companies have come around to realizing they need to do something, it's already too late. So actually getting in early and, and prompting those changes is, is, is the right way to go. One of my questions that is sort of amusingly looking at my notes here is what would success look like? But we know from the start of the podcast that success is not having a job because you've succeeded in, uh, in, in making yourself jobless. How do listeners, what should listeners do differently to help Louisa lose her job, would you say? <laughs> I think uh, over the years, I get asked a lot of questions from individuals. Is this better than that? Um, should I do X or should I do Y? What's the one thing I should do um, to improve my impact? And I actually think the complexity of the issues that we face today, there isn't there isn't one answer, unfortunately. And it always depends on what 
you want to make a change about maybe it's your carbon footprint but maybe it's animal welfare or maybe it's you know societal change so my biggest advice to everyone is to just go and learn and educate yourself find out what you are interested in find out how your own life um, style is affecting that and the more you educate yourself and the more you learn the more empowered you will feel I think then that starts translating to the way you spend your money the jobs you do the people you work for um, and that's how you build up um, yourself as, as being a an accountable and a responsible individual so for me it's all about learn educate grow and get that from so many places these days I think is the best way forward and as you said, there shouldn't really be a sustainability sector because it should just be business as usual and it should be across everything. So start there. Yeah. Uh, sorry, go on, Louisa, I cut you off. No, I was just going to say, I completely agree. And, you know, I'm not under any illusion that I will ever be out the job. Like you say, if I ever could step <laughs> away from a job, I'm sure there'd be another one I'd step into. And yeah. the, the landscape is such that what is best in class or best in industry today will be standard in a few years time it's it's a, it's a progressive um, and continuous improvement um, like I say things I'm even doing here today are kind of stage one I already know what stage three and stage four are what needs to be happening I'm just not scaring uh, the team here yet with with what that is but it's it's such an exciting place I think to to be involved in and I just I just say for everyone if it's in your own personal life or even in your work life just get involved and, and get moving with it. Brilliant, Louise. It's been amazing having you on the show. Before you go, um, I've got a few things to wrap up with because we could I could just do another hour of this. It's great. But um, we have something called the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame. And we ask people to leave something, somebody, um, a thought. It could be anything. In our First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, what would you leave in there? I don't know how you'd capture this. I love the spirit of the young generation today. I don't want to put Greta in there on her own. I want to put like everyone that surrounds her. I think the passion that come out of individuals, those young, would be amazing. So somehow if you could bottle up the knowledge and the energy of that next generation who are going to come through and be those future leaders, that to me is, is, is what I would put in there because I think that's worth celebrating youthful optimism yeah let's put, let's put that in there something i'm trying <laughs> desperately to to keep hold of or get back <laughs> the essence of youthful optimism yeah. um and it is optimistic rather than sort of energy or something else youthful because it is just that sort of um you know the the, the optimism that change, we can make a change and it's not and i think the 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 they still have the innocent simplicity view of life of but why are we doing it like this? And, and why can't we do it differently? And unfortunately, as adults, as we start going through our careers, we, we just lose that and we just say, oh, that's we do it because that's the way it is. Or somebody of a higher level is telling us another way. Whereas I just love the approach they have and I don't want them to ever lose that. And I want them to carry that through into their jobs and their future lives because that's what will really create change. Brilliant. Louisa, it has been absolutely amazing to have you on the show. Um, thank you so much. Um, do you want to signpost any listeners to any particular websites or do any plugs? I'm sure they can find the Brompton Bicycles website using uh, our friend Google. Anywhere, any other areas to signpost them to? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, do check out um, Brompton's website. Um, if you want to know more about the cycling industry, um, Cycling Industries Europe, um, they have a sustainability page as well. And there's also an organization called Shift Cycling, who are a group who are really trying to move the cycling industry to be more sustainable. So, yeah, great uh, movements for everyone to get involved in. Brilliant. Fantastic signposting, Louise. It's been amazing having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Bruce Bradley and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O. Zero five o.